Uh, good evening. If you brought your Bible, please open it to Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3. We are talking about how to live as exiles, how to be resilient in a world of hostility. And if you're picking it up as we go along, we are gathering answers to that question. How can we live with resilience in a world of hostility? And during the first session, we said that it was by acknowledging the fact that we are in exile and anticipating our home in heaven. Last night, we talked about the fact that what we need to do is resist the cultural pressure by living in the fear of God. And tonight, as we think about this question, how do we live with resilience in a world of hostility, we're going to talk about the fact that we need to expect that trials will come and we must endure them by trusting in God. This is a ship that sailed in 1904 called the Endurance. Uh, on it were 28 men whose mission was to be the very first human beings to transnavigate the continent of Antarctica. They wanted to land on one end of it and march all the way to the other end. And they were doing it for glory and for exploration. But before they even landed on the continent, their ship was surrounded by ice. It was crumpled up like a soda can, and it was sunk to the bottom of the ocean. So you can see in the picture there on the right, it began to careen to one side as the ice pressed in on it. Eventually, it collapsed the hull, and the whole ship sank. These men, all 28 of them, were left adrift on an iceberg in deadly cold weather with very meager rations and 800 miles of frigid open ocean between them and the nearest civilization. This is Ernest Shackleton, who was the captain of the Endurance. And those right there are the 27 men that he sailed with. The, the story of the endurance, it lives on in perpetual memory because all of these men survived. Every single one of them made it out the other side. And it's more attributed to the leadership in the midst of trouble that Ernest Shackleton, Sir Ernest Shackleton, demonstrated than anything else in the world. And so the question has been asked over and over and over again, how did they manage to survive? And I want to propose this answer to you. At the very least, I believe one of the reasons that Ernest Shackleton and all 27 of his men survived is because they were expecting the worst. They didn't walk into this expedition thinking that it would be a walk in the park. They didn't walk in thinking it would be easy. In fact, they knew it would be trying and difficult and challenging and maybe even deadly. And so they walked into this situation staring full in the face the difficulty and deadly danger that awaited them. And the, I know that that's the fact because when Shackleton put out an ad in the London newspaper to recruit a crew, this is what it said. Men wanted for hazardous journey with small wages facing bitter cold and long months of complete darkness in constant danger. Safe return, doubtful. Honor and recognition in case of success. <laughs> Who is 
just signing up for that job. Here's what you can say about Ernest Shackleton. At the very least, he didn't bait and switch anyone. He told them up front, this is how hard it's going to be, and this is what you should expect. He was prepared for it. And so when he was faced with the worst possible scenario, he didn't panic, he wasn't overwhelmed, he didn't throw up his hands, he wasn't uh, whining or complaining, he didn't become paralyzed with shock and awe. He expected the worst, so he led with clarity and courage. He preserved the unity and the morale of the men. He made critical decisions in the face of danger, and he was able to save the lives of all 27 men who sailed with him. Now, here's the problem. I think that so many of the issues that we face in our Christian life stem from the fact that we bought the lie that it was supposed to be easy. So many of the obstacles and the shocks and the frustrations that we experience as young followers of Jesus stem from the fact that we bought a fake version of Christianity that told us it was supposed to be a walk in the park. When I receive Jesus, life is supposed to get better. God is supposed to bless me, and that means material things, and that means circumstantial ease, and that means nothing will ever go wrong. And if that's the version of Christianity that you were sold, you got duped. You, you've been bait and switched because that is not the version of Christianity that the Bible promises. In fact, quite the opposite. The promise of the scriptures is that anyone who desires to live a godly life will suffer persecution. That it will be dangerous. It will be difficult. It will be hard. And yet, you have all the resources that you need from the Spirit of God himself to endure every difficulty that comes your way. So here's the question. How can we expect that our Christian life will be difficult and yet be equipped to have everything we need to be faithful anyways? And so tonight, all I want to do is I want to, I want to do two things again. I want to help you anticipate what happens when you face up against the difficulty and you take a stand. I want, to, I want you to know what is coming for you. And then I want you to understand the resources that are available to you as you take that stand in the face of difficulty. And so we're going to spend most of our time in Daniel chapter 3, but just a quick recap of what happened in chapter 2. It was summarized by that video so, so well. King Nebuchadnezzar, in the beginning of chapter 2, has this wild dream, and he doesn't know what it means, but he believes that there's some sort of prophetic significance in it. And so he sends a message out to all of the masters of divination, all of the magicians and the enchanters, and all of the people who had the mystical powers, things like the to interpret dreams. But he doesn't just tell them that they have to interpret the dream. He, has, he makes an impossible request of them, and he tells all of these masters of divination that they need to tell him what he dreamed and what it means. And all of these magicians, they come to him and they say, King, that's impossible. No one can do that. And the king, who is violent and vindictive and impulsive, he says, fine, then I will kill everyone who belongs to this profession, to this discipline. Now, it just so happens that that death sentence includes Daniel and all his friends. And so when Daniel hears, hey, the king is going to kill everyone like you, 
Daniel runs to the Lord his God and says, God, can you help me? And the text says that God gave him the blessed ability, the supernatural power and insight to not only interpret the dream, but to know the dream. And Daniel goes to Nebuchadnezzar and he tells him his dream and he tells him the interpretation of the dream. And Nebuchadnezzar praises God. But like the video showed us, it was very, very temporary. And when we find ourselves beginning in chapter 3, we see some gap of time between this incident of the interpreted dream and when Nebuchadnezzar has slidden all the way back into his pagan worship. And so how we get set up in chapter 3 is that Nebuchadnezzar has constructed a statue, a massive monument. Doesn't tell us exactly what it is, but it's about 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. So this thing is huge, much, much taller than this chapel. And he commands everyone in the Babylonian Empire to bow down and to worship this statue. And then we pick it up in Daniel chapter 3 and verse 8. The text will be on the screen if you don't have it in front of you. And it says this, Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. Now, listen to how they're going to appeal shamelessly to the ego of King Nebuchadnezzar. O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe. Apparently, there were Scottish people back then. And every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. So this is a, just notice, these guys are pretty cunning. It's likely that these guys were a little jealous of Daniel and his friends and how quickly these foreigners had been promoted to positions of power. And so when he, they find out that they don't bow down before the statue, they go to the king and they use a classic negotiation tactic. They said, king, you said this. You made a decree that everyone needed to bow, didn't you? And king, the king would have no option but to say, yes, I did. And then verse 12 well, there are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. first thing to note here is that Daniel is nowhere in sight. Conspicuously, this is just Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, it's likely, if you look at one of the very last verses of chapter 2, that the separation of Daniel and his friends is simply due to the fact that Daniel was promoted within the king's court, and he was probably still with the king's company, who probably wasn't participating in this ceremony. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they, they were. And so they are off being exposed for their refusal to worship the statue. And these guys, they appeal to the king and they say, these men pay no attention to you. They don't listen to what you say. They reject your authority and they dishonor you. What are you going to do about it? 
And so this brings us to the first thing I want to do for us tonight. I want to help you anticipate what happens when you take a stand. Verse 13 says this. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Here's three things that you should anticipate when you take a stand. If I take a stand for God, I will, number one, I will face resistance for my difference. I will face resistance for my difference. The Guys, they decide in this massive ceremony of bowing down to this statue in worship of a false god, they decide that they will not do it, and they take a stand. They know that the law of God commands that the very first, one of the very, very first commandments that they were given is that you shall not worship anything other than the living God, the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You shall not make a carven image or bow down to it. You shall not worship idols. You only worship God. And so they decide to take a stand and to obey the law of God and to not worship the statue. And that makes them different than everyone else around them. Because the impression that we get is in this massive horde of people, they all hit the deck. They all get low. They all bow down. They all worship the statue. And then conspicuously, out in the middle of the crowd, standing out like a sore, thrum, a sore thumb, is these three dudes who are like, we're not bowing down. We won't do it. And so they stand apart from everyone else, and they face resistance for it. And so here's what happens. They get, they get ratted out for not bowing down. I don't know how visible they were or what the king could see or not see, but they go to the king and say, hey, these guys aren't bowing down. And then the king himself, verse 14, confronts them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, is it true that you do not serve my gods? Is it true that you won't bow down to the golden image? And he's asking them because he wants to give them, he's about to give them one more chance to capitulate and to do what he is telling them to do. But they experience resistance for their difference because they refuse to do what everyone else does. And this will be true of you if you want to follow Jesus. You will get pushback if you refuse to do what everyone else is doing. They will look at you like a weirdo if you choose not to say and believe and do and think everything that they say and do and feel and believe. You're going to have to be a little bit different if you want to follow Jesus. And you're going to have to be okay with that. You have to sacrifice the desire that is deep within you to just fit into the crowd if you want to follow Jesus. You're going to be distinct from the world. You're going to be different. 
you're not going to watch what everyone watches. You're not going to say what everyone says. You're not going to listen to what everyone listens to. You're, you're not going to prioritize and pursue what everyone prioritizes and pursues. You're not going to laugh at what everyone laughs at. You're not going to believe what everyone believes. You're not going to like what everyone likes. You're going to be a little different, and you can count on the fact that you're going to face resistance for it. You might get mocked. You might get ostracized. You might get left behind. You might get pushed out. You will face resistance for your difference. But one thing I want you to take note of here is that just because you are different does not mean you are alone. Did you notice in the story? I love this. Every single time that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are mentioned, they are mentioned as a triplet. These guys were rolling like a squad, and they had each other's backs. And it was like, where we go one, we go all. The three musketeers, am I right? Where we go one, we go all. And if we're going to get made fun of, if we're going to get pushed out, if we're going to get killed, we will do it together. Christians Christians have become really good at, at ostracizing each other at making fun of each other, at pushing each other out. And I'm just here to tell you, it's about time that we were on each other's team. It's about time that we backed each other up, that we got together and we rolled together, that we linked arms and that we had each other's backs. You do not have to be alone. Facing resistance is a whole lot easier if you got a crew with you, if you know you're not isolated and you're not alone. That's why it's so powerful to be part of a group like the one that brought you up to Hume Lake this week. Because you know, man, I'm not alone in this. I have people who've got my back. But this is what will happen. If you take a stand for God, you will face resistance for your difference. Here's the second thing that will happen. You will have opportunity to give up. You will have opportunity to give up. Navy SEALs, before they can become Navy SEALs, they do something that's called BUDS, Basic Underwater Demolition School. And this is, the, this is the training regiment and the selection process that they go through before they can qualify to become Navy SEALs. And what happens is they're subjected to this brutal tour of physical suffering and agony and they're cold and they're tired and they make them run and carry stuff and be in the frigid ocean and roll around in the sand and run miles and it's, it's terribly difficult. And what they do for the entire duration of the brutality of this training is they give every single potential seal the perpetual opportunity to quit. And the way you quit at any point in this time is you simply walk over to a little bell that they have standing there and you ring it. And if you ring the bell, guess what happens? The suffering stops immediately. And you are not a Navy SEAL. And so while they're training and while they're, while they're covered in sand and they're being thrashed by the frigid cold waves they will do things like they will prepare hot meals and bring warm blankets and they'll set them right by the bell and they'll just say hey it can all be over in just a second just come ring the bell just come ring the bell 
It'll all be over. And you will be presented with opportunities just like that to just give up on Jesus Christ at any moment. Do you know that the world is just constantly dangling temptations out in front of you and saying, hey, you can have this if you'll just give that up. You can have this if you'll just quit. You can have this if you'll just walk away. These guys get the opportunity even after they took their stand. Look at verse 15. Now, this is the king speaking to these guys. If you are ready when you hear the sound of all these instruments to fall down and worship the image that I have made well and good, you can go free. I won't kill you. I won't hurt you. I won't do anything bad to you. If you're okay with just bowing down to this statue right now, you're a-okay with me. He gives them a wide open door to preserve their lives if they will just quit on God. And now, here's the crazy thing, is I think if you and I were in this scenario, we could probably even come up with some reasons that it would be a good idea to bow right now. Right in front of the king, with a statue right there, you're like, fine, I'll just bow. Consider maybe these reasons. These are maybe reasons I could come up with if like the gun was to my head and I was about to die. I was about to be thrown into the fiery furnace. Maybe I would say, well, hey, you know, no one will know. No one will know. It's just me. I'm not actually giving up on God. I'm just like pretending and I can just get away with it and we'll just move on and pretend it didn't happen. Or I could say, well, you know what? I'm not actually going to reject God in my heart. I'm just going to like, you know, when you give somebody a promise and you like cross your fingers and put them behind your back, like you didn't really mean it. Like maybe that thing where you're like, you know, I'll, I'll bow down, but that's just a physical thing. In my heart, I still worship God, no problem. I'm just going to spare my life. Or you could say, you know, it's just only one time. It's no big deal. It's only one time. In the grand scheme of things, God knows I'm faithful to him. I'm not actually giving up. Or maybe the most compelling one, hey, you know what? All of these godless pagans around here, they really need us to represent God to them. So if I just bow just this one time, I can spare my own life, and then I'll be alive to glorify God. And yet none of those reasons are satisfactory for them to actually give it up. And here's the deal. You, you will always be able to find a reason that you can rationalize your disobedience. You will always be able to come up with a justification for why it's actually okay to just push the boundary here or give up there or walk away here. The world, the culture, will be ready to supply you with ample opportunities to do that. And if you take a stand, you will perpetually have opportunities to just quit, to just give it up. And you will have to decide over and over and over again, I'm going to be faithful. I'm not going to quit. I'm not going to take the off-ramp. I'm not going to pull the ripcord. I'm not going to ring the bell. I'm not going to just get out of here. I'm going to be faithful. If you take a stand, you'll face resistance for your difference. You'll have opportunity to give up. And, and third, you'll experience consequences for your actions. If I stand for God, I will experience consequences for my actions. King Nebuchadnezzar says it to him clear as day. If you do not worship... He says, hey, if you bow down, no problem. I'll let you go. Easy. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And then listen to this challenge. Remember I told you in the very first message, this is a battle of the gods. 
He says, and who is the God that will deliver you? Who's going to get you out of this problem? This is what will happen. You will experience consequences. He tells them, hey, betray your allegiance to God or die. And while it's likely that you don't face, you don't face a choice that dramatic, the reality is nonetheless true for you that if you want to follow Jesus, there will be consequences. If you want to follow Jesus, there's some things you're going to have to give up. If you want to follow Jesus, there's some things you're going to suffer. And if you don't anticipate that, if it comes as a shock to you, then you will be very bothered when you get there and you have to actually let the things go and you have to give it up and you have to forego what you would otherwise enjoy. It's going to be a problem for you. So expect it. It's a guaranteed reality. It's going to cost you something to be faithful to Jesus. The scriptures say this over and over and over again, that before you follow Jesus, what you should do is count the cost. And the cost is your very own life. Jesus doesn't say, hey, if you just come to me and you like rearrange just this little like three hours of your week, that'd be great. If you can come to me, you can keep everything about you and it'll be totally fine. The cost of following Jesus is death to self that you are off the throne of your life, that you're no longer in charge, that you crucify your flesh with its desires, and then you live through the Spirit of God. It's going to cost you something to follow Jesus. And maybe not even just repentance. It might, it might cost you friends. You might not be able to hang out with those people anymore. Either because you feel convicted that you can't do it, or they push you out of the friend group. You might not get that promotion at work. You might not even get that scholarship that you're hoping for. You might have to sacrifice that relationship that you have with that girl or that guy. You might have to surrender or give up something that you enjoy. There will be consequences if you want to be faithful to Jesus. This is what will happen to every person who wants to take a stand. You will face resistance because you're different. You will have opportunities over and over again to give up, and you will experience consequences for your actions. So if that's what will happen, that's what happened to them, it's what will happen to us if we take a stand, then what do we have? How can we be supplied? How can we have everything we need to be able to actually do it and to honor God by being faithful to him even in the face of the difficulty and danger and persecution that we know is coming? Well, here's what I want to tell you. I want to tell you that the power to stand, it does not come from the place that we are most likely to look, which is within ourselves. We live in this culture that's just like, hey, man, just try harder. Just be smarter. Just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and just do it. Just, be, just, just work harder. Just grind. Just hustle. Just make it happen on your own. And that message is antithetical to the gospel. The hope of Jesus and the hope that you have available to you is not that you can be strong enough, but that you have resources by looking actually away from yourself and looking to the greatness and glory and power of God for the resources that you need. And that's exactly what we're going to see these guys do. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, a famous old preacher, summed it up by saying this, do not judge the situation by the king's threat and the heat of the burning fiery furnace, but judge the situation by the everlasting God you serve and the eternal life that awaits you. That's an awesome quote right there. He says, men frown at you 
but you can see God smiling on you, and so you are not moved. This is what we need to do. We need to view the situation primarily through what God thinks of it and what God can do in it. And so in verse 16, we see their response. If you can maybe jump back up to where I had all of the text, there's a slide there with verse 16 on it. It says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Which... I mean, it takes some serious guts to say that to this guy at this moment. We have no need to answer you in this matter. Verse 17, if this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. This is what these guys do. These guys do not say, we are brave. We are strong. We can take anything that you throw at us. They turn their gaze away from the resources they have, and they look upon the infinite resources that they have available to them in the character and power of their faithful God. And they say this. They say, our God can deliver us. Our God will deliver us. And even if he doesn't, we will not betray him. And that right there, there's a reason that this is like the most iconic story in the book of Daniel. There's a reason it is the theme verse for our time together this week. Because that right there is the mantra of an exile. My God can deliver me. My God will deliver me. And even if he doesn't, I will never betray him. That is, that is what you need to have so deeply rooted in your heart if you will be faithful, if you will be resilient in a world of hostility. This is how you can stand for God. I can stand for God if I have just three things in the, in the contours of those three things that they say. Three things. I can stand for God if I have, number one, reliance on his power. First, he says, my God can deliver me. Do you see it there? If this be so, our God whom we serve, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Moses, the God of the Exodus, the God who is faithful and keeps all of his covenant and his promises to his people, this God that we serve, he is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace. This is a, this is, we're clapping tonight. We love it. Let's go. This is a deep and informed trust that God is able, that God has the capability to protect all of his people. These guys know, right? They, they know the God of the Hebrew scriptures. They know that this is the God who spoke and literally galaxies came into existence. They know that this is the God who holds the world together by the word of his power. They know that this is the God who cannot be thwarted, who cannot be stopped, whose will rules and reigns over all things for all time. And they say with confidence and with trust, they rely on his power. And they say he is able to deliver us. He's able. And if you want to be faithful, if you want to be resilient, you must first believe that God is powerful. Listen, it's just this simple. If you think God is weak, it's no wonder you won't stand for him. If you think that God cannot help you, then why would you ever be faithful to him? 
If you think little of God, if you're forgetful of him and you don't care about him, we talked about this when we talked about fearing God, if you're unaware of his character, if you don't spend any time in awe of him and worshiping him, if you're not constantly reminding yourself that your God is omnipotent, that he is eternally and infinitely strong, then what makes you think that you would be strong in the face of opposition? This is why, this is why, man, it is so powerful when the Bible argues like this. In Romans chapter 8, it says, if God is for us, then who can be against us? The logic that Paul is arguing with there in Romans chapter 8 is not that no one will stand against you, but when they do stand against you, you can be filled with confidence because the God of the universe stands behind you. You can be filled with that sort of confidence. So first, if you want to stand for God, you can if you rely on his power. Number two, you can stand for God if you trust in his heart. This is so, so important, guys. Not only do they say our God can deliver us, they say our God will deliver us. And this, this is so important. They say, not only is God able to protect us from this scenario, but he is willing to do it. God, God wants to protect his people. And what these guys are doing here is they are demonstrating that they know the faithful, loving character of God. You see, sometimes I think we have, this, we have this mixed up idea that when we suffer and when our life is hard, that God is somehow distant from us. Or maybe even worse, that God is looking down from heaven and he's kind of cackling maniacally like he's playing a really twisted practical joke on us and he's just watching us suffer and saying, hope you figure that out. And nothing could be further from that. The, the truth, the truth is, is that God is a father and that he loves you. And that, yes, in his sovereign wisdom, there are times when things get allowed into your life. And yet he's, he's overseeing all of the events of your life with a heart of compassion and kindness and generosity and wisdom and love. That's, that's who God is. And so if you want to stand for God, if you want to be resilient in a world of hostility, you don't just need to believe that God is strong. You need to believe that God is for you and that he loves you. These guys believed it in their bones. They believed that our God is powerful, that he is able, that he is strong. And guess what? He is for us. He loves us. He is with us. And if you want to take a stand for God, you've got to believe that too. You have to trust in the heart of your father, the God of heaven. And then last, the third thing, you have to have confidence in his plan. Confidence in his plan. I can stand for God if I have reliance on his power, if I have trust in his heart, and if I have confidence in his plan. Notice the last thing that they say. They say our God can deliver us, our God will deliver us, but even if he doesn't, we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. You see, they believe in God's ability, they believe in God's compassion for them, but they do not presume to know the will or the plan of God, and yet they are confident nonetheless. 
Now, here's a, really, here's a really important thing for you to understand. God is, we live in an age of instant gratification where we want everything right now the way we want it. And God doesn't work like that. God is not like a vending machine that you, you press a button and place an order and you get what you want. And if it doesn't spit it out right away, you shake the machine because you're really mad at it. That's, that's not how God works. And we do not worship God because he is like a, a, a butler who brings us exactly what we desire in the moment that we desire it. And he, makes, he grants all of our wishes like a genie and he makes everything right for us. That is not why we worship God. We worship God because he's God and he is for us. That's why, that's why we worship him. And so when we have confidence in his plan, we don't even need to know the exact details of what it looks like and what the outcome will be. But we do not worship God. We do not stay faithful to God because we're promised immediate gratification and results in the here and now. And that is what is so resilient about these guys' faith. Their faith is not built on an immediate positive outcome, and neither should yours be. If your faith is built on the fact that everything goes right for you all the time, you believe in a fairy godmother. You don't believe in the God of the Bible. Because all the time, and here's what's so crazy about this. They say even if he doesn't, and in just a moment, he's going to. Like he's actually going to supernaturally save them. But guess what? This is the exception and not the rule. They say even if God doesn't save us. And do you know that for the vast majority of human history, when Christians have faced death, God has not shown up with supernatural power to save them. They die. Multitudes, multitudes of martyrs the world over, beginning with the apostles, faced death for their allegiance to Jesus Christ, and they died. The flames didn't get put out. The fourth being wasn't in the fire. They weren't spared. They actually gave up their lives. And guess what? God was still faithful to them. And they were delivered. They were delivered because even through death, the people who belong to God are ushered into his presence where they will experience fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. God is faithful no matter what the circumstantial outcome of your life is. And you need to build your resilience on a deep and settled confidence in the goodness and the wisdom of his plan for your life no matter what it looks like. And if you don't have that, if, if, if your confidence is simply in the fact that things will go right for you, then your faith will crumble like a house of cards. But if your faith is in the fact that God is good and wise, then you can trust him. So we'll finish here. The question might still be lingering for you, like, man, why... Why should I be resilient? Like, I understand what you're saying. I understand that this is what will happen if I take a stand. I understand that these are the resources that I have if I take a stand. But I just don't know why I should do it. I don't know why God is worthy of that. I don't know why I should stand firm when it's going to be difficult and it's just easier to go with the flow. And I just want to finish with this thought. The reason we stand, in fact, the only reason we stand is because God saves this is the reason that we stand. 
The reason that we stand firm is not because we want to be some sort of religious crusader with a superiority complex who just wants to be different from everybody else around us. It's not because we just want to pick a fight with people who don't love Jesus. None of those are the reasons that we take a stand. We don't take a stand because of legalism. We don't take a stand because of tradition. We don't take a stand because of dogma. We take a stand because we are serving the only God who can save us. And the way that this story ends is so beautiful. They, they do not capitulate. They do not bow down. And King Nebuchadnezzar is so enraged that not only does he throw, him in, throw them into the fire, he turns the furnace up so that it's seven times hotter. It's so hot that the men who are responsible to carry these three guys to the fire, they die before they're even able to throw the guys in the fire. And then the supernatural power of God is on full display when they are walking around in the midst of the fire and there is a fourth angelic being that preserves their life and they come out unscathed. God saves them. And God saved these guys. He saved these guys from the fires of the furnace. But what we're going to spend the rest of this week at Hume Lake unpacking is the reality that Though these guys were saved from the fires of the furnace, it is through God's one and only son, Jesus Christ, that you and I are saved from the fires of eternal judgment. There is a, there is a, hold on, hold on, hold on. There is a salvation that is far more significant than being saved from a literal fire. And it is being saved from the wrath of God that you and I deserve for our sin through the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that, at the end of the day, that is what the book of Daniel is all about. And that's what I want to spend the rest of this week zooming in and talking to you about because at the end of the day, that is the only reason that we are here, so that we could have an encounter with the living God. Not so that we could become stubborn, religious people, but so that we could be rescued by the God who made us, and we could live with faithfulness, and we could honor him as we expect trials and difficulties to come, and we're able to endure them because we trust him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you that you have given us the gift of your word And thank you that through it, we can know your faithfulness. God, it's it's hard to follow you and to be faithful to you. But I pray that you would give us all the resources that we need. I pray most of all, God, that you would just show us tonight and for the rest of our time together that you love us so much that you sent your one and only son to save us that he shed his blood on the cross to forgive us of our sin, that he is alive in the power of the resurrection to grant us the gift of eternal life if we put our trust in him. That, God, is why we are unfailingly loyal to you, because you are our savior and our king and our friend. We are loyal to you because you gave everything you had to rescue us from the penalty that we had brought on ourselves. So God, help us to persevere. Help us to be strong. Help us to expect that difficulty will come, but give us the resources from your Holy Spirit that we need to be faithful to you. Would you be honored as we serve you in this way, we pray in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Amen.